Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT Hello and welcome back to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. This week we'll be ranging over subjects from science in Israel to growing replacement lungs through tissue engineering. We welcome our regulars in the studio, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council. Good morning. And my colleague, Andrew Jack. Hello. I had an interesting meeting last week with Daniel Zeifman, who is President of Israel's Weizmann Institute of Science. He was in town for a symposium on cosmology and the origins of the universe, put on by the Weizmann at University College London. Now, whatever your views on Middle East politics, there's no doubt that Israel carries out some superb research, as demonstrated last year when Ada Yonath of the Weizmann shared the Nobel Chemistry Prize. So I asked Daniel, who's a Belgian-born physicist, what makes the Weizmann special? The Weizmann Institute is... um research institute located in Israel, made of 250 research or independent research groups working in all fields of science and um, focus on what we call curiosity-driven research or basic research. How have you managed to achieve such a high international scientific reputation in the small and politically rather isolated environment of Israel? Well, I think it comes from two different reasons. The first one is the understanding that in Israel, um, given the lack of natural resources for the last um, 62 years that the state of Israel exists, we understood that the only resources we have is the one which is located 1.7 meters above the ground, that's our brain, and that's what we better actually uh, invest in. And so the philosophy has been to invest as much as possible in people, in uh, in the human capital. That's one thing. The second is that I do not believe for a single moment that the state of Israel has succeeded to be a strong scientific success only because of that investment in these 62 62 years. As I always said, it belongs also to the 4,000 years of Jewish culture that is behind uh, the willingness of the Jewish people to still be intellectuals, scholars, and to understand that um, if you know something, it has some value. And I think that's very deeply rooted into the Jewish culture. So I would say these two arguments or these two parameters are important for the success of science in Israel. Are virtually all of your scientists and your research students Jewish and Israeli, or can you get people from other backgrounds? Well, I don't know about Jewish. We don't ask if you're Jewish or not Jewish, so I cannot even answer that question. They can be Christian, Muslim, and we do have Christian and Muslim students and professors. Um, They're all Israelis, Uh, by definition, but you have to remember that uh, the definition of an Israeli might be different than the definition of an English person. Still a very large portion of Israelis living in Israel were not born in Israel. I was not born in Israel. I came to that country 31 years ago from Belgium, and that's the big advantage of that country. It's a country of immigration. I know that talking in Europe about immigration sometimes is seen as a disadvantage, 
we see it as far as intellectual import is concerned as a big advantage. Is there any prospect, do you think, of scientific collaboration with your neighbouring countries? Well, we have very uh, little scientific collaborations. We, we do have some of it, and we are trying to, and we would be willing to uh, explore more possibilities. No doubt we meet a lot of our neighbours' scientists outside of Israel when we go to conferences, and I can tell you from my own experience that these meetings are always outstanding. Um, and the reason, of course, is because science is really an international language, uh, meaning that uh, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Muslim. We all try to solve the same equations. Where does the money to run the institute come from? About 30% of the money comes from the Israeli government on an annual basis. We have about 25% come from funding agencies, granting agencies, from which the EU, inside the framework program, is actually the largest uh, funding agency. About another 25% of the budget come from our own endowment fund. And then another, the last 10%, if I'm right, uh, comes from uh, industry and come from uh, philanthropy, which is also a very important part of how we run the Institute. It's rather remarkable, isn't it, that the EU should be the biggest source of research grants for an Israeli institution? You mean that because Israel is not part of the EU by itself? Yes. It's remarkable, but the big advantage, I think that the reason for this is that there's a free competition uh, over these grants, and we are full partner, and we pay our share to the EU to be a partner of these grants. And I think per capita, indeed, Israel has been quite a success story as far as science and technology is concerned. And the reason comes back to your first question. We have invested quite a lot in our own people so that um, in infrastructure so that they can compete at this European level. What research do you still manage to do? What's your research group up to? My research group works in um, a very fundamental field of physics, uh, which... Uh, in simple words, in simple words, trying to understand how matter changes when it moves from single atoms to uh, bulk materials. That really does symbolise the really basic fundamental research going on at the Weizmann, doesn't it? It does, and I have to tell you that sometimes people ask me, so why are you spending so much money to do that? And my answer to this is the following. If you look at the history of science, if you look at the history of innovations and discoveries, you'll find out that most of the biggest discoveries were not made because people want to develop something. Discoveries were made because human beings were curious about the environment. Maybe the best example I can give, if you allow me, and I think that everybody will understand, is how can you make a program, let's say 130 years ago, that would discover X-rays? I mean, if you don't know that X-rays exist, so how do you discover them? So somebody there at that time, Mr. Röntgen, was very curious about some radiations and the way that electrons were moving from one electrode to another. It was useless, completely useless, as useless as what I do every single day in my lab. But he discovered X-rays. That's a tremendous application. Nobody could have set up a program to find X-rays. It doesn't exist. So innovations and new discoveries are not only made because you want to solve a problem. They're made because you want to understand how nature works. That's what we do. Diana, how much contact have you had with Israeli science and scientists? Absolutely nothing, actually. And while I was listening to him, I was wondering whether we had any chartered scientists in Israel. But I thought that it would be fantastic to have English scientists have that very calm assessment of where you need to invest in individuals and 
do it over a long time. I mean, it was a very positive, upbeat message that he had from long-term funding and security, I think. Clearly, Israel does punch above its weight in terms of science and, and innovation. As he was saying, I think partly it is that pretty extraordinary intellectual diaspora from around the world that they've been able to draw on either those who've moved into the country or the connections that are maintained. The other thing he didn't touch on so much, of course, is this huge military establishment and the very powerful impact that's had in terms of spin-off research, including in medical devices and all sorts of other technological areas. And I wonder if also it provides... It's a very eclectic society because Teva is the world's largest generic drugs manufacturer based in Israel. And so you also have this sort of high turnover of people who've built up experience in a variety of fields, not only in science, but also in management, including in pretty tough circumstances. And that's perhaps helped create quite a powerful tissue and infrastructure of companies as well as researchers. And one wonders whether, in fact, if some sort of peace does come to the Middle East, they will be able to interact with universities in the Arab world, who certainly are way behind in most aspects of basic science. I can't see why any scientist or scientific group wouldn't want to do that. There was a wonderful uh, example I had, actually, uh, more on the applied level, circumcision, which has become an important sort of focus for reducing HIV transmission. The Jerusalem AIDS Project has partnered with traditional Muslim groups from Egypt and elsewhere and is now working in a number of parts of Africa. So a great example of collaboration across borders. Well, thanks very much. On now from the Middle East to the Pacific, because Andrew's been attending the Pacific Health Summit. And although Andrew loves travelling, no, he didn't actually go out to the Pacific for this. The conference was held in London. Yes, as you say, traditionally this so-called Pacific Health Summit, which has been running for several years, was based in Seattle. But this year it moved across the Atlantic because one of its co-hosts is the Wellcome Trust, of course, one of the largest funders in the world of science and health research. And in fact, I talked to Mark Wolpert, who's the director of the Wellcome Trust, about what he thought this week's summit had delivered. I think some very clear themes have come out. The really important thing that in the context of maternal and child health, the voice of the customer is really important. Pregnancy is not a medical condition. It's a normal part of human physiology. And so we really do need to listen to the women themselves. We need to be more agile, and that was a point that was made very effectively by business in criticism of the public sector, and I felt that was a fair criticism. And also the importance of local solutions that actually what works in one country may not be exactly the same as works in another country, and that if we're really going to empower and get solutions to work, we need local solutions. And in the last few months, we've seen a lot of people debate political discussion shifting perhaps from vaccines or from support for HIV and some of the other big global health issues towards this one of maternal and child health. Is that, a, is that the appropriate thing to do? Is this really where the, the biggest gap is at the moment, do you think? I, I think we shouldn't get into a competition about which is the biggest gap, actually. I think that the problem is that with the tendency to have vertical programs which concentrate on a particular area, be malaria or HIV, there's a danger of advocacy at the expense of everything else. These are all problems, actually, and what we need is health systems that are versatile and cope, can cope with all of them. And a lot of people think, perhaps traditionally, of the Wellcome Trust as being largely a funder of earlier stage, more fundamental scientific research. Is this something of a diversification of your mandate to focus much more perhaps on the policy end, the implementation? Um, no, I don't think it is. I think one of the things the Wellcome Trust has funded for a number of years now is translation. 
So discovering things is very important, but actually what we want to do is to achieve extraordinary improvements in health. We'll only do that if there's translation of discoveries from the laboratory to the clinic. And so this is an area that the Wellcome Trust supports very strongly, and we support it in the developing world as well as the developed. And post the, the financial crisis, we've seen a squeeze both of endowments, philanthropic organisations, and their ability to give governments, of course, increasingly cutting back, and at the same time a research community squeezing, being squeezed quite severely now, of course. What, what was the experience of the Wellcome Trust and how you can respond to that? Well, I, I, I mean, the answer is that choices have to be made, and I think that was one of the other things that came up in the meeting, that uh, you can't go to politicians and say, do this, and they'll just say, well, what's the opportunity cost of doing that, at least the Treasury Civil Service? will say that. And so I think for the trust, it's about supporting excellence. It's about making sure that when we spend money and support research, support translation, that it stands the maximum chance of achieving that. So it's actually about supporting the best people to do this. So if there was one single choice that one had to make around this field of maternal mortality, perhaps, that's emerged from the recent discussions. Any thoughts? What would that be? Distilling things into a single choice is always wrong, but at the end of the day, one of the big challenges is to do what we already know works well, and it's about getting local systems working effectively. Andrew, did you feel that there was anything distinctively regional about Pacific health issues, for example, maternal and child health there rather than in Africa? Wherever the summit is held, those who attend come from around the world, and one certainly hears a lot from voices on the ground in Africa. I thought it was very interesting the way that counterbalanced the earlier interview, um, talking about, you know, you might know these things, but delivering them on the ground in different social settings is very difficult, and bringing together this whole range of different specialisms and skills to do that. One of the groups he didn't mention, of course, was actually the... The, the women themselves, which you'd mentioned early on as a user group, and I wondered how difficult that is to allow them to determine the sort of service that's actually delivered. It's true, a lot of these sort of high-level discussions very often focus on the technologies, the tools, the hospitals, the more formal medical sector, and much less those people on the ground who are dealing daily with the experiences and really have the, the mastery as well as being the primary victims. And were the NGO sector involved in this conference as well? Yes, the NGOs were there, um, and there's been a number of meetings um, in recent days, of course, we're building up now to the so-called um, Millennium Development Goals Summit to take stock of progress around a whole range of health and broader development issues in September. And in the build-up to that, and indeed following the G8 meeting in Canada last weekend, there's a lot of concern about funding and a lot of demand on the ground, clearly, for sustained support at a time when, of course, those who are perhaps most affected but have a le least voice in terms of the impacts of the financial crisis are desperate to keep up the momentum. How good a forum do you think this type of global conference is for discussing public health issues? To be honest, I think there's a risk that some of the, the big presentations are a little bit too remote still from the concrete stuff on the ground. And of course, as usual, it's the sort of conversations in the coffee room and the corridors that count more than most. But it's important, I think, to have that higher level picture as well. And hopefully the message permeates to individuals who wouldn't normally be part of this discussion. I mean, there is a tendency at these big conferences that people come and do their set piece and don't move the debate along enough and that was would always be a worry right well i think we'll move on now from big public health issues to a specific piece of biomedical research and that means moving over to robert frederick in washington for this week's contribution from science magazine thanks Clive. 
For the first time, scientists have engineered lung tissue, implanted it, and measured it, exchanging carbon dioxide with oxygen. The purpose? To develop a scientific and technological platform for eventually regenerating lungs, derived from the cells of the patient, so the regenerated lung won't be rejected by the patient. The current therapy for people with badly damaged lungs is a lung transplant, which often is rejected. Laura Nicholson at Yale University is senior author of a paper published online by Science last week reporting the work. The microarchitecture of lung is extraordinarily complex. So the insight that we could basically fall back on a native lung and use that as a scaffolding that has all the right structure, but then eventually repopulate it with cells from the patient to produce a lung that would be not rejected by the patient I think that was the initial insight that started our work on this topic four years ago. In this case, the patients were all rats. Nicholson and her team would remove a lung from a rat and then carefully wash away all the lung cells. That left behind only the scaffolding, called the extracellular lung matrix, a very intricate three-dimensional structure made up of protein. Then the team injected cells to repopulate the extracellular lung matrix, cells that came from other rats neonatal rats. So airway cells went to airways and alveolar cells, which are the alveoli or the air sacs of the lung, alveolar cells went to alveoli. So there was clearly some cues that were offered by the lung matrix that really dictated where cells landed and who they became once they landed there. And other researchers had seen this before, but Nicholson and her team didn't stop there. They matured the repopulated lung in a bioreactor that Nicholson and her team designed to mimic conditions in the womb. When lungs are developing in the fetus in the womb, the lungs are perfused with blood through their vasculature. And it's also important to know that the fetus actually breathes in utero. So the fetus breathes amniotic fluid in and out intermittently during development. And this is actually fairly important for lung development. We mimicked both of those things, both the blood circulation and the breathing of fluid, in our bioreactor. One week later, they had a new lung fit for a rat, which they implanted into a rat and measured the lung exchanging carbon dioxide with oxygen about 95% as efficiently as a normal, healthy lung. Peter Lalkish researches tissue engineering at Drexel University and is not associated with the study. So this is one step further than other people have done who just have shown that you can replenish, reseed a lung and then get tissue-specific distribution of the cells. Here they matured the lung and could show functionality, which is gas exchange, which is the ultimate functionality, gas exchange. But only for a couple of hours. Again, study author Laura Nicholson. After a few hours, gradually some of the blood vessels in the engineered lung began to clot off. And there are other problems, too. But Nicholson says those can be worked out by the time the fundamental problem is solved. The fundamental problem is where those patient-specific cells come from to repopulate the extracellular lung matrix. Nicholson says they'll need stem cells, perhaps induced pluripotent stem cells. So, she says, it will probably be 20 to 25 years before we see this kind of lung regeneration in a clinical setting. But Peter Lalkish of Drexel University doesn't think it will take that long. I congratulate Laura Nicholson for being so cautious and not overhyping the situation. <laughs> because other people would go and tell, oh, we do it tomorrow. No, she is very cautious, and I think this is the right approach to do, to be cautious, 
to see what can be done, but not to hype it and to oversell it. I don't want to say tomorrow or three months from now, three years from now, but I wouldn't think 20 years. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. Personally, I'm going to go with the cautious camp. I mean, having been having watched biomedical research and development over 20, 30 years, I'm afraid, I think this is going to be another 20 or 30 years before it reaches the clinic. I don't know what you think, Diana. I think the cautious approach is the right approach, but what's very interesting now is that we're sharing all of the steps that we're taking and I think that takes a population and the patients with you. Yeah, no, very welcome. Um, it's true one, one, one does hear so often the wonderful numerical cure for cancer in mice or something like that and it is, it is nice to hear a realistic exp- explanation of the challenges and the sorts of potentially long timescales but exciting to see this first very promising step. Yes, it is. There's been a bit of talk about biomedical or bioscience research hype in the last week for the 10th anniversary of the completion of the Human Genome Project, because certainly in 2000, when Tony Blair and Bill Clinton were trumpeting the completion of the first draft of the human genome, there was much hype about cures within the next 10 years. They're not here yet. Anyway, I hope you'll agree it's been another fascinating show Next week, I'll be away at the European Science Forum in Turin with Andrew in the chair here. Diana and Andrew and Robert in Washington, thanks very much for your contributions today, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 